Good afternoon. My name is Dr. Joseph Cardenas from Yuma, Arizona. And today's talk is supported by an educational grant from Cordis, a Cardinal Health Company. The topic is radial access, a comprehensive review of clinical applications, techniques from the radial artery. Our presenter is Dr. John George. Our learning objectives are to evaluate and identify transradial approaches for PCIs to assess the approaches to complex large bore access cases from the radial artery, and to determine the appropriate access techniques and to analyze access and closure devices for optimal patient outcomes. And I'll now turn the presentation over to Dr. George. Dr. Cardenas, thank you for having me here. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk through this uh, important topic of uh, radial access and, and where we find this utility in, in the complexity of cases that we do. Um, I'd like to kick it off with a quote from Sir James McKenzie, and I love this quote, and it becomes applicable to evolution of technology. There are three stages in the history of every medical discovery. When it is first announced, people say that it is not true. Then a little later, when its truth has been borne in on them so that it can no longer be denied, they say it is not important. After that, if its importance becomes sufficiently obvious, they say that anyhow, it is not new anymore. And this is the cyclical pattern of, uh, of what we do uh, when new technology and new discovery comes around and uh, uh, till, till it's uh, not new anymore. Uh, so with that, we're focusing on radial artery access. Uh, and there's a reason why uh, this has uh, become very popular and favorable. And if you know the radial artery anatomy, uh, we know that some of the advantages are that it is superficial, uh, it's easily compressible, uh, it is not a terminal artery because it ends in a palmar arch and connects with the ulnar artery, uh, supplying a dual supply to, to the wrist. Uh, and so this becomes important in utilizing this as an access point as opposed to some other arteries. And, and where did this all begin? Uh, I think uh, Sir Steg Radner, a, a physician from Sweden, uh, was the first one to actually utilize the radial artery for access. And it was for a diagnostic uh, a thoracic aortography uh, that he performed from a radial access. And that first publication uh, in 1947 is what spurred uh, the evolution of using radial artery as an access. Uh, and from a diagnostic uh, access point, it soon became an interventional access point uh, when Dr. Ferdinand uh, Kimeneji uh, actually used the radial access uh, for a stent implantation with the original Palma Schatz stent. Uh, in the coronaries, and this was published uh, uh, in 1993. He did the procedure in 1992. And we've come a long way from there because uh, it started with a diagnostic procedure and then uh, an interventional procedure in the coronaries. And uh, as we go through this talk today, uh, we'll talk through various scenarios where we can potentially use uh, radial access. So I'll, I'll start off uh, with the, the first case, uh, which is a tra uh, transradial access in an acute coronary syndrome uh, for percutaneous coronary intervention. Uh, so here we have an 82-year-old male with no prior medical history that presented with substernal chest discomfort for five hours uh, prior to arriving at our institution. Uh, the ECG demonstrated ST segment elevations in the inferior leads. And then the patient was urgently transported to the cardiac cath lab for coronary angiography and uh, subsequent intervention. And if we open this up for discussion here, uh, the question becomes, what is your access point in a scenario um, such as this? Um, Dr. Cardenas, do you have uh, comments on, on how you approach an acute coronary syndrome? I think radial first is already a known practice. I like radial first. I think that if the patient becomes hypotensive and has other issues and requires assist, you still have the femoral access for a balloon pump or for impella or another, another support device. But radial first is it's proven. It's already a, a known commodity. Um, and I, I'm excited to see what you show now in the angiogram. Yeah, so we're in our lab, we go radial first uh, for all our acute coronary syndromes. Uh, you know, it was a, a learning curve, obviously, for 
our lab, for our staff to get comfortable with prepping the patient for a radial access, even in an urgent uh, catheterization procedure such as this. Um, but it was a quick turnaround once uh, that learning curve was established. Uh, you realize that almost anything that needs to be done during an acute coronary syndrome can be uh, performed from the radial axis. Uh, that is not to say that you don't have unsuccessful cases where either the patient is in shock and, and the, the arteries are clamped down and you can't access the radial artery, or there's an anatomical variant where there's a radial loop or uh, tortuosity that prevents you from, uh, from getting through quickly enough to do the case. Uh, and so you would have to switch over to a femoral approach or an alternative axis approach. Uh, but generally speaking, majority of these cases can be done uh, from a radial access point. And that's what we've converted to as our, our first um, option. And so this is a, the radial uh, um, access with a diagnostic angiogram showing on the left panel, showing an acute thrombotic occlusion of the mid-RCA, uh, which was easily uh, wired. Uh, if aspiration needs to be done with thrombectomy, that can be performed uh, from that radial axis as well through a six French guide. Uh, guide extenders can be used uh, with um, guidezillas or guideliners or telescope uh, to provide additional support uh, when you don't have that in, in uh, um, these lesions uh, to treat these lesions. And uh, balloon angioplasty and stent obviously can be performed uh, easily. Uh, as well. And so as you can see, we had a great result from uh, very nice. stenting. Uh, so we'll move on uh, to some data uh, on a, a broad meta-analysis of uh, uh, patients that underwent coronary angiograms, uh, both in acute coronary syndromes and in stable ischemic heart disease. And what you'll see on the top panel is a combination of all the studies uh, that have been done uh, looking at uh, radial versus femoral access uh, and looking at major bleeding. And you'll see that if you include stable ischemic heart disease and ACS, there's a huge uh, favor towards uh, radial access or radial approach for these, uh, for these procedures. The bottom panel looks at specifically ACS. And even in that uh, subset, you see that there are so many more studies focused on just ACS patients alone, and you'll find that there's a significant benefit in uh, radial access compared to femoral, and that's purely looking at an outcome of major bleeding. All right, so we'll go to another subset of patients. Uh, so these are osteocoronary lesions. Uh, so using transradial access in these uh, specific subsets, one of the reasons why I wanted to uh, demonstrate a case uh, for this is because people tend to consider osteal coronary lesions, whether it be the left main mm -hmm. or the RCA, as a technically more challenging uh, case, technical case, than it then would be a routine de novo lesion in the mid-vessel or proximal vessel. Um, and so here is a 73-year-old female with history of diabetes, hypertension, and dyslipidemia that presented with exertional anginal symptoms. Uh, a stress test revealed inferior ischemia and uh, was subsequently scheduled for coronary angiography. Uh, and so we'll, we'll talk through uh, this here. If you look at that left panel, uh, you see a calcified RCA that's dominant uh, with an osteal lesion that's about 80% and calcific. You can see that little rim of calcium, shelf of calcium uh, at the superior end of the osteum uh, that was very easily treated, as you see on the right panel, uh, with wiring, uh, ballooning, and even using specialty balloons such as uh, scoring balloons or cutting balloons uh, to treat the calcium uh, in that vessel and get adequate stent expansion. Uh, again, as mentioned previously, you can use additional support as needed with uh, guide extenders uh, if, if it is required in the case, uh, but it can easily be treated even with a second wire if you need additional support um, in these osteal lesions with withdrawal of the guide as necessary to make sure that the osteum of the vessel is covered. That's a great case. What size, uh, what size guide did you use? Yeah, so this was uh, a six French uh, guide. We felt like this was a case that we could treat uh, with uh, the equipment that we needed um, with just a six French guide uh, you, with just balloon angioplasty and stenting. Do you use side holes? 
Yeah, so for osteal lesions, we tend to use side holes, uh, side hole catheters. I can't specifically remember if this was a side hole catheter, but there's a good amount of contrast coming out, uh, which suggests that it might have been a side hole catheter. Uh, but that tends to be the case in majority of the osteal lesions uh, since we have dampening of pressures. And the real reason to use side holes in those scenarios is that you have a, an exit for the contrast that you inject when you're damped from the guide sitting up against the, the lesion at the osteum. How do you deal with uh, the possibility of watermelon seeding with an osteal lesion and stent deployment on a radial case? That's a great question. And so the, the question is whether we can position uh, the stent or the device appropriately at the osteum uh, without shifting that deeper into the vessel or out into the aortic, uh, uh, into the aorta. And so there's a couple of uh, different techniques that you can use. You can use a second wire that you uh, can potentially loop in the aortic cusp, in the right coronary cusp, if uh, that's where the RCA originates, uh, and allows you to delineate exactly where that, the true osteum of the vessel is. Uh, we tend to do a lot of imaging, uh, and we'll uh, co-register with imaging to find out exactly where the true osteum is, and that helps as well to mark the uh, true osteum of the vessel. Um, alternative strategies, we actually, to make sure that the osteum is covered, will protrude the stent out into the aorta uh, and then use other uh, specialty balloons such as the uh, Flash Osteopro balloon, which allows you to flare the stent struts in the aorta and allows a, a good seating of the stent covering the osteum of the vessel. That's great. All right, so that brings us to other complex lesions, uh, lesion subsets, and this is transradial access in a left main bifurcation lesion. Uh, and so these uh, tend to be complex as well, bringing into question the need for multiple wires, multiple balloons, simultaneous balloons, and uh, perhaps even multiple stents. Uh, and so this is a 62-year-old male with history of hypertension that presented with exertional angina and dyspnea on exertion as the clinical symptoms. The stress test was positive for anterior and infralateral ischemia uh, and was subsequently scheduled for coronary angiography. And um, let me ask you a question, Dr. Cardenas. Is, uh, in left main bifurcation lesions, is that a set that uh, you would consider... Uh, using radial access, or is that uh, I think, preemptively? I think you're already pushing, and that's good. I would do as many cases as I can from the radial access. Uh, we, with the extenders and the, the novel technologies out there, uh, sheathless, allowing you, like you mentioned earlier, a large bore guide. It's shorter distance. There's less scratching of the aorta and the iliacs uh, or the arch. And if you have support and they're hemodynamically stable, I'd like it. I'd, I'm shyer, I shy away from the left main distal bifurcations unless there's clinical evidence I'm a little bit older than you and like to stay away from the bifurcation. But bifurcation is done frequently now. Uh, my favorite used to be the osteal. I think that if, it's, if it can be done from radial, we should try it first. So that's uh, kind of the, the path that we follow as well with these cases. Uh, you know, these are potentially patients that were either ruled out for uh, a surgical bypass because of their comorbid conditions. Uh, you know, if the surgical option is excluded and if, if this needs to be done percutaneously, uh, what this is supposed to demonstrate is really that it's feasible to use transradial access for even complex lesions. Uh, so what you'll see in these panels of pictures, uh, you'll see that there's a distal left main osteal LAD, osteal circ lesion. Um, so this is a Medina 111 for classification of the, uh, the bifurcation lesion. Uh, and this becomes tricky because you have to have a wire into each of those major branches. Uh, you need to balloon both of those branches and then decide what kind of stent strategy you're going to use for this bifurcation subset if you're doing this percutaneously. Um, so in this particular case, in panel C, uh, you'll see the uh, stent um, being lined in the uh, circumflex uh, mm -hmm. while there's a balloon positioned in the left main into the LAD simultaneously to allow nailing the ostium with the T-stent technique uh, 
by inflating the balloon and allowing the stent to be deployed uh, right at the ostium of the circumflex. And then subsequently, the, uh, after the uh, circumflex stent is deployed, uh, the left main and the LAD can be treated uh, as needed uh, with balloon angioplasty and stenting, which was done in this case, all from the radial approach. Uh, and then what you see is a final uh, kiss, uh, a double uh, simultaneous kiss of the LAD and the uh, circumflex uh, from the left main after rewiring the circumflex through the freshly deployed left main and LAD stent uh, to allow a beautiful new carina uh, with uh, brisk flow and widely patent as, uh, as demonstrated. Uh, now, in all of these cases, we use uh, intravascular imaging. It was beyond the scope of uh, everything that we could show here, but we do intravascular imaging for all of these cases with either IVIS or OCT uh, to demonstrate one positioning, mm-hmm. uh, to show adequate coverage, and then adequate stent expansion and apposition, both uh, sizing it before uh, the stent is deployed and also opposing the stent uh, appropriately after and post-dilating after the stent is deployed and allows you to get a great, um, great outcome. Uh, the one other thing I'd point out is once you're going into two stent strategies with uh, bifurcation lesions, you have to always think of a larger uh, guide. Mm-hmm. And so the way we overcome that from a, from a radial standpoint is either using uh, a sheathless guide uh, system, and there are uh, several out there, uh, using uh, slender sheets, uh, which are you know one size, one French size uh, smaller uh, than the typical standard sheets, uh, allowing you the lumen of a larger French size. Uh, or the third option is using the railway system uh, from Cordis, which allows you to change a any use any of your guides as a sheathless uh, access uh, for for intervention. And it allows you to use a large guide without necessarily uh, creating a larger uh, arteriotomy in the radial artery. The, the railway is really a game changer. Um, it allows you to use, like you said, the large bore guide. You have to be more patient, making sure it seats well into the target uh, vessel. But if it's seated well, and you don't have to torque anymore, and you don't have to seat it or play with it, then you're done. And uh, We've had nothing but success with the railway. Our difficulty is in maneuvering it with uh, inexperienced operators and having the hands on it, always wanting to control the guy. The guy should be left alone. It's seated very well there. Um, and if you choose, take the time to choose the right guide, this, uh, this railway is nothing but success. That's great. That's, how, that's what we found as well. And it gives you the flexibility of using your traditional guides that you normally use as opposed to finding or settling for a curve that's available on the sheathless systems. Um, so it's a good way to use your currently used guides. We, we even use railway for coronary interventions and then flip over to maybe do a, a peripheral distal outflow system, all keeping the initial stick to a 5-French sheath at the end of the case, which is, as we all know, great for these patients that are calcified, elderly, and at risk for vascular complications. Absolutely. So we elevate the complexity of uh, interventions with this next case. Uh, This is transradial access in CTO-PCI. So we all know that chronic total occlusions are are a complex subset of patients to treat, uh, especially from the radial axis and sometimes requiring dual access. Uh, which could be dual radial or single radial and ephemeral or bilateral femorals. Um, so what you'll see here is a 63-year-old male with no prior medical history that was actually admitted with an acute MI. Uh, coronary angiography that was done urgently at the time revealed thrombotic uh, circumflex uh, occlusion, which was appropriately treated successfully with a drug-eluting stent And that was done via right radial artery access, which is traditionally done in our labs. Uh, But in the process, the patient was also found to have an RCA-CTO, which was classified at a JCTO score of 2, which is reasonably complex. And so the patient was uh, discharged uh, after recovery from the acute MI and scheduled for a staged elective uh, CTO-PCI of the RCA. 
so here in comes another discussion point about you know how do you approach uh, chronic total occlusions and PCI for this subset of patients, uh, whether you go with radial axis, femoral axis, uh, biradial, or bifemoral, or one of each. Uh, and so those are a variety of different options, and I think for most people, uh, what makes that decision for them is the size of the uh, guide that you're going to use for the dual simultaneous angiography. And our transradial access has evolved, and the technology and systems have evolved to the point where, as we discussed in the previous case, the sheathless uh, guides and the uh, railway system allow you to use the larger guides from the radial approach uh, without difficulty. Um, so this is, uh, the left panel shows um, the uh, dual simultaneous angiography in the CTO patient. As mentioned, it was an RCA CTO. Um, the, there is a guide from one radial uh, that's going, uh, that is uh, integrated into the RCA, and then you have a guide from the contralateral radial uh, that is uh, the donor vessel with the collaterals from the left system supplying the distal RCA. So what you see in that left panel is a proximal RCA occlusion, that's a CTO, with reconstitution of the distal RCA via collaterals from the LAD septals, uh, supplying the RPDA and RPL branches. And panel B shows you how this can be traversed uh, retrograde from the LAD septal collaterals. And what you see there is a wire uh, going through the LAD septals into the distal RCA and now retrograde across the occlusion into the proximal RCA. And so if I keep going, in panel C is where you see the uh, loop that is being formed from the left donor vessel uh, collateral into the distal RCA and coming back up and around into the proximal RCA to create that loop then which uh, uh, allows you to then deliver all your equipment integrate once that wire is externalized and treat that CTO all from a biradial uh, access approach. And so in panel D you see a final result uh, with multiple overlapping stents uh, to cover that uh, chronic total occlusion with an excellent uh, result to the distal RCA. That's a great RCA. case. That really is a good case. So use this, uh, what do you use for the left? Was it a five or a six? So we tend to use a six French for the left, uh, for the left and uh, a seven French for the... That was from the, the left radial. That was from the left radial was the six French and then the seven French from the right. And radial. how do you position the arm, uh, the left arm? So we bring it towards the body, so it's easier for us as an operator. Uh, otherwise, you have to have somebody sitting, um, you know, further out if the arm is stretched out. So we bring the arms towards the body, and so it's uh, easier for us to um, deliver equipment and uh, uh, work seamlessly without changing the style of how we do the procedure. We also have a technique of bringing it up and over, mm -hmm. over the abdomen, uh, to give us closer access to the access site uh, so we're not leaning over with lead and creating bad posture uh, in the cath lab. So this, again, demonstrates how you can even do the most complex of coronary cases uh, by using radial access and using the technologies that are available now to go larger sizes. Uh, and uh, you know, CTO is a prime example of such a case. Uh, here's some data on looking at CTOs and, uh, again, looking at the success rate of doing transradial versus transfemoral. And you'll see that there is majority of the cases in a JCTO score that's low is done transradial. But as you go to a higher JCTO score of greater than three is when it gets very complicated to do a transradial for a variety of reasons. And I think we're just getting to the point where we are starting to get more comfortable doing complex cases uh, by the, with the radial approach mm -hmm. and allowing you to overcome the deficiencies that we have uh, from a radial axis, which used to be a size limitation and support limitation. And I think the sizes are overcome now with uh, using the uh, sheathless systems and the railway system 
uh, and the support uh, issue is overcome by using guide extenders and uh, anchor balloons and, and uh, trap balloons uh, to allow and facilitate the success in the complex case. All right, so changing gears a little bit uh, with the next case, this is transradial axis in an anomalous uh, coronary PCI. Uh, these are always interesting because uh, you may or may not know that the patient has anomalous coronaries when you go into the case, uh, but this was one where we had a 70-year-old morbidly obese female with a BMI of 47 that was referred for progressive angina. So in a patient that's morbidly obese, um, this is a, a typical radial case for us because of all the access-related issues from a femoral access in, a, in an obese patient and body habitus causing uh, the issues with bleeding uh, in these patients. So this was done radially, uh, but she had a prior history of aortic stenosis, status post-mechanical uh, aortic valve replacement 10 years prior. Uh, so we know that this patient already has had an open chest, uh, uh, with the, which again elevates perhaps the complexity of the diagnostic procedure a little bit, changing, modifying anatomy. Um, uh, the stress test demonstrated significant anterior wall ischemia, and she was uh, then scheduled for the angiography. So like I said, this was done um, radially, uh, and the reason for showing you this case is to show you a very unique situation of a single coronary artery, where the entire left main and the left coronary system and the right coronary system arise from a single uh, ostium. Uh, and so this is a very unique case uh, that we published that was engaged with an Amplatz left uh, catheter, uh, for the diagnostic procedure. And sadly, as, as the stress test demonstrated with anterior ischemia, she was found to have a lesion in that uh, proximal LAD segment uh, denoted by the arrow in that uh, C panel. And so the question is, you know, would you then continue with the radial axis in this complex anatomy in a, uh, a unique uh, anomalous uh, coronary case? or would you then switch over uh, to a femoral axis to provide uh, greater reliability on how your uh, catheters sit? Uh, so just to challenge ourselves, uh, we decided to try to do this procedure uh, from a, uh, a radial approach uh, uh, initially. Uh, so this is, you see that there's a, a femoral catheter here uh, to, uh, to look at it initially but we ended up uh, doing the whole case uh, from the radial approach. This is a guide sitting, uh, the Amplatz left guide actually sitting from the radial axis with a wire across the lesion in that proximal LAD. We even did an IVIS uh, to evaluate the size of the vessel because it appeared to be extremely large and mm -hmm. to appropriately size the stent for this vessel and uh, uh, treated it uh, successfully with a great result as uh, shown here. In, this, uh, in the left and right panels. The left panel is the pre-image and the right panel is the uh, post. Do you consider in, these, in this one, as well as osteolesions or other ones that are um, tricky, to stiffen your wire or do you always stay with the same wire? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, in these kinds of cases where you see, you almost saw that guide flipping in and out of that ostium, which shows you that you have very little support. You try to get as much support uh, compensation with the addition of a wire and a guide extender. And uh, so that's what we tend to use. I can't recall exactly in this case uh, what was done, but I would typically use a soft wire to navigate uh, the tortuosity uh, into the distal vessel and then use a, a support catheter to exchange the wire for a stiffer supportive wire. And then on top of that, perhaps even use a guide extender to sit uh, further into the LAD to support the delivery of uh, the equipment. This is also a good example of using imaging. You're getting excellent, oh, excellent diameters and apposition and measuring these vessels, these target vessels. It takes extra time, but you're getting a much better result and probably a better long-term result for the patient as well. Absolutely. I think we have a lot of data coming out about uh, adjunctive imaging, intravascular imaging in these patients and improving outcomes uh, if you have good stent apposition and expansion 
uh, and getting a uh, minimal luminal diameter that is uh, greater than 90% of what you started off with. Uh, and so we tend to use a lot of imaging in our, uh, as an adjunctive tool in these cases. We'll switch gears here now uh, into the uh, extra coronary space uh, and we'll perhaps uh, take a journey from uh, head to toe here. Uh, so we'll start off with carotid interventions. This is transradial axis in, in carotid interventions, which is a uh, which may have been in the past a uh, a uh, an avoided axis uh, for carotid interventions because you have limited window of uh, error. Um, but here is a 62-year-old male that presented with uh, a transient ischemic attack. Uh, CT angiography was performed, which did not reveal any focal infarcts, uh, but confirmed an 80% stenotic lesion in the right internal carotid artery. Uh, he was also noted to have 60% stenosis of the right subclavian artery distal to the right uh, uh, common carotid artery, uh, and then was scheduled for uh, carotid angiography and stenting. And so in a, in a patient like this, uh, where you have right subclavian artery stenosis, uh, just distal to the right common carotid artery origin, uh, it becomes tricky to use the right radial artery as, as the access point because you would have to traverse the stenosis and allow the catheter uh, to navigate around it into the common carotid artery uh, if this were to be done transradially. So you have the option of then using the contralateral uh, radial axis, which is what we decided to do in this particular patient using the left radial artery axis uh, as our access point. So what you see here is an aortogram uh, being performed uh, to look at the arch anatomy. Uh, you'll see the tortuosity of that uh, um, subclavian on the right side, uh, right around the origin of that uh, uh, right common carotid artery and also the um, borderline lesion that you see there into the subclavian. Um, and you'll see that this is a uh, type 1 to type 2 arch uh, that allows you to have, you know, perhaps reasonable access uh, from a femoral approach uh, to be able to do this case. Uh, but again, this, this case is uh, here to demonstrate that it can be done uh, safely uh, from a, a radial axis. Uh, as you know, carotid interventions only require uh, six French uh, catheters. Uh, both the balloons, the stents, and the distal embolic protection can all be delivered through a six French sheath. Uh, and so what we have here is a wire uh, coming down the uh, left subclavian into the ascending aorta, looping at the aortic valve and going back up into the right uh, common carotid. And what that provides is uh, amazing support, uh, as a matter of fact, to be able to deliver equipment as it sits on the aortic valve pointed straight up right into the uh, right common carotid artery. Uh, and so the wire and the left panel, and you see the sheath has traversed uh, that uh, supportive wire. We typically use a stiff glide wire in these cases. Uh, position in the right external carotid artery and take a six French uh, shuttle sheath or uh, destination sheath over that uh, into the right common carotid artery. And so you see the pre-lesion as demonstrated by the arrow in the left panel uh, is the original lesion that we were dealing with and then the right panel shows you the result post uh, angioplasty and stenting with distal embolic protection that was done uh, successfully from the left radial approach. That's a good case. Um, the, this is another, another way to, to maybe show the uh, railway. Now, railway can be done also with the 7 French Cordis guides, the 7 French GR4, or the XBLAD um, can also give you the same, the same access. I'm impressed on your access from the left radial across the arch. I like that. That was very good. Yeah. Um, I, I think that was really good. I think these patients will benefit. There's less irritation to the arch. There's less uh, risk for embolization. Um, alternately, if you go back to the pre-picture, the pre if you go back a few slides 
and you can show the tortuosity of the common carotid, that one, that one would be a good setup if it weren't for the 60% uh, subclavian because of that loop. You'd be able to get your railway and your JR4 all the way up with your stiff glide. Uh, but that's, that's a wonderful case. Showcases all of our, our, our new abilities and techniques. Exactly. And what we've found in our experience is that, uh, as you mentioned, uh, uh, there's less manipulation in the aortic arch uh, as opposed to coming from a femoral axis. Uh, what we tend to do is do a lot of clockwise and counterclockwise rotation in the arch as the femoral uh, sheath is hugging the outer curvature of that arch. And if it is a patient that has uh, aortic atheroma, which a lot of these patients that have atherosclerotic disease in the carotids do, uh, we are potentially embolizing uh, those, uh, those atheroma and debris uh, down the aorta. And so there's less manipulation and it's a lot more elegant uh, coming from a radial axis in some of these cases. And so we've had a variety of these where we've gone just radial off the bat and others where we've actually gone femoral first and, and failed to engage in a type 3 arch or have enough support in a type 3 arch to be able to sit a sheath up there. Uh, and then we've switched over at that point to go to radial, and then you have all the support in the world by the catheter looped in the, at the aortic valve. So I actually have some data uh, that was published. This is uh, looking at transradial approach for carotid artery stenting. Uh, this was 300-plus uh, patients uh, that were uh, looked at uh, as a case series uh, and published in CCI uh, that looked at the complications at 30 days going from a radial axis uh, approach. Uh, and you'll see that, uh, again, this is not a randomized comparison. This is just looking at the transradial axis. And you'll see that the comparison uh, of complications or adverse events are extremely low. Uh, the only thing that sticks out is that 7% of radial artery occlusion. And, uh, and the question is, can we get better at that as we go to sheet?